Okay, we are live on another edition of the Edlow Podcast. Subscribe. This is a, a little different one, but I'm really excited about it. I have the leading, I would say, the leading voices on the history of one of my favorite films, The Wizard of Oz. I have Jay Scarfone and William Stillman. Hello, guys. Thanks for indulging me on this. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I just picked up your book and I've been reading through it. The the newest book, you've read sev- written several, but the one that I have is The Road to Oz, which is blurred out on the video for some reason. Uh, the Evolution, Creation, and Legacy of the Motion Picture Masterpiece. And in all my reading and my research on you guys, you are you have gone beyond what I would say fandom into collecting and now kind of being leading voices on the history. And I just, what... First of all, how did you guys get paired up in this? And then what was it that led you down this road? Well, uh, Jay and I have known each other for 40 years now. Oh. And we met uh, by virtue of, you know, obviously at, having this birth. We met at birth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell people I came out of the womb uh, knowing all there is to know about the Wizard of Oz. No, for me personally, it's it's something that, I've been fascinated by as far back as I can remember. I grew up in the 1960s and uh, that was kind of a neat time to be a kid if you were interested in The Wizard of Oz because there were the annual television broadcasts of the movie. Mm. You can only see it once a year if people can still remember that. And Mm. also at the same time, there was this promotion that Procter & Gamble did with uh, uh, hand puppets of the characters from The Wizard of Oz. And then there was a an MGM TV series called Off to See the Wizard. And there was a lot of merchandise connected to that. And so um, it was it was good timing to be a kid into the Wizard of Oz. Mm, nice. How about you, Jay? Uh, very similar to, to William, um, be, be, mostly because of the annual telecasts. I mean, it's something that was there, always there. I don't remember the first time I saw the Wizard of Oz because it was probably a time when, you know, my memory, you know, hadn't yet started. Um, so it was always there, but it was a very special thing. It was it was an event. And, you know, we had just network television. So you didn't have the onslaught of choices. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a very special thing. And I I distinctly remember, you know, being in grade school, first grade, second grade, third grade. And, you know, the teachers would just would pump this up and say, you know, remember to watch The Wizard of Oz or did you hear The Wizard of Oz? And 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 my classmates would as well. And as Bill said, um you could only get that once a year so it wasn't uh, it wasn't enough to let you tire of it or that it would become mundane it always you know was like uh, for me as a kid seeing it for the first time each year and something at that age in those impressionable years that sticks with you i think and i think a lot of collectors that we've uh we've known or that we've we've seen you know in uh in interviews like this say you know that's that's what hit me it's something that is from my childhood mm. I think yeah that's, i think that's true of anyone who is passionate about collecting on a particular topic or a particular subject it's something that tends to grab you in your mm. childhood and it creates um nostalgic emotional connections to memories yeah i agree and it's it's interesting there's a couple of things that you said there that i think younger younger listeners aren't aren't going to understand i grew up a little bit later that was in the 80s and and yeah i mean imagine just even like you know i was just was reading i'm a big uh pro wrestling fan and i was just reading the most recent they had some t 
TV show on it, it drew like a two point rating, right? And they're like, that was huge. But back in the 80s, you know, Saturday Night's Main Event would draw a 15, you know, and because there just wasn't the options, right. you know, and there wasn't a DVR, right? And so, I mean, I grew up in the VHS, you know, time, but even in that time, I mean, you know, it was, there was appointment television, you know, you, you, you had to sit and watch, otherwise you missed it. And, uh, and I, my mother would, would tell me about the Wizard of Oz coming on every year too. And she had the exact same experience. Everybody sat down and watched it. It was a big deal. And, uh, you know, kids nowadays, I mean, it sounds old to say that, but kids nowadays don't understand that because everything's at a moment, you know, you can get it at a moment's notice. Right. And back then it was an event. It was exciting. And there so, are, and today there are hundreds of viewing options. And then there were three networks. <laughs> right. Right. Networks yeah. to choose from, you know, and it was a big deal. I mean, people got together. I mean, I, I meet people who have very fond memories of being in their grandparents' homes and their grandparents are now deceased. And, you know, everyone gathering together to watch this movie and getting your bath early so you could watch in your pajamas. And, and yeah. it was just a really special, again, yeah. an emotional connection. I, I remember the excitement also sort of somewhat being offset by a little bit of anxiety. Mm. Were we going to be there? Was everybody in the room going to be quiet enough? I, I know <laughs> um, they used to show it um, on Easter Sunday, you know, for a time. And, you know, at one year I, I was at relatives house and it's like, well, you know, are they going to watch the wizard of Oz? Otherwise I'm not going. <laughs> um, but you know, everybody was respectful of that. Uh, I think, you know, because uh, as we've said, it was a very special thing and it was an event. Um, you know, I, I remember growing up, there was, there was my birthday, there was Christmas and there was the day the wizard of Oz was aired on television. Well, because I'm old, I'm old. And so I, um, I remember the first time watching The Wizard of Oz about 1967, 66, 67. And I also remember that was the same time I saw the Chuck Jones animated The Grinch Who Stole Christmas debut, oh, yeah. debuted about the same time. Mm, yeah. kind of it, so The Wizard of Oz at that time was shown at Christmas time. Oh, wow. Interesting. Man, so... Um, how did that graduate from just being a super fan to collecting? And I, and I got to tell you, the reason I ask is because I, so I'm a big Rocky fan, the movie The Rocky, right? Yeah. And uh, I built a, I built a movie theater in my house and it's dedicated to Rocky. And I started collecting, you know, autographed shorts and, you know, from different people and kind of going around there. So I know that that can get time consuming and expensive so what what do you like how did you get into collecting i think it was you know you had that once a year experience but then what do you do the other 364 days a year to satisfy mm -hmm. your interest in that film mm -hmm. uh and and then i'll let i'll let william speak but for me it was you know how, how do i fill that void you know in between showings and you know you wanted to just have those reminders those mementos things to remind you because uh again as a child i don't i don't know if this is the way a child mind mind or memory works but as i said earlier when i would see it it was like there was something very new about it even though i had seen it i don't know how many times uh mm -hmm. that's what judy garland as dorothy looks like it i kind of you know had become fuzzy so it's those reminders um of the this film that i really uh, that was captivated by mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how about you william 
One of my earliest memories is having a, a beautiful picture book edition of the Wizard of Oz story. It was originally published in 1950, but it was kept in print for uh, over 30 years. And a lot of people grew up with it. And I was one of them. I remember my mother reading me this book and I remember learning how to read by recognizing certain words on the page as I followed along as she was reading. And uh, again, I think similar to what Jay was saying, it's just the idea of sustaining the emotion and sustaining the, the memory connections to that special family event and, and everything that made the movie just exciting and a little frightening and uh, heartwarming. And um, as an adult, you asked about collecting. Well, I now have four of the original illustrations from that book, from that picture wow. book. Hanging wow. In <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, and that's another thing that I think is is really cool about, like, the, the I'm a big movie buff in general. And one of the things I think is so interesting is The Wizard of Oz really has stood the test of time. Like, you know... It, it's it's still relevant now kids my kids have watched it you know what i mean and you know we are almost we're almost 100 years from when it was when it was first released and it's still relevant what do you think it is about the wizard of oz that makes it so relevant as compared to almost anything else in that era well it's the first it's considered the first indigenous american fairy tale it was published at the dawn of a new century in May of 1900, and it's never been out of print. And it mm -hmm. continues to inspire and inform any number of forms of entertainment that either uh, mimic or parrot uh, elements of it or Take, branch off into a, 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 a new form of entertainment. I mean, you look at the musical Wicked on Broadway, it's celebrating its 20th anniversary yeah. this year, the most po you know, popular um, musical on Broadway. And um, there's, a, there's a new uh, a cartoon television series on Netflix, I believe it is, for children that's coming out. And it just perpetuates. And I think there's something just sort of uniquely American about it. But also, I think that it is timeless in its ability to speak to any number of us. Like, I remember as a child, anytime there would be a strong windstorm that would blow up, thinking, you know, my gosh, it, it, if it happened to Dorothy, it could happen to anybody. It could happen to me, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Man, how, how about you, Jay? What do you think? I, I think a lot of people since the release of The Wizard of Oz uh, in 1939 have tried to, uh, you know, answer that question and, you know, put phil philosophical spins on it. Uh, you know, some have said, oh, well, you know, it's the whole uh, Judy Garland thing where she, you know, she she passed away so early and that therefore it makes it uh you know, more endearing. I just think I, maybe I'm, I'm shallow. <laughs> I just think it's, it's, it's just fun. It's, it's very delicious in all of its elements, the color, mm -hmm. the songs, uh, all those things are what spoke to me as a kid and still do. Um, you know, I don't look for these deep, 
meanings. And it's, it's been interesting in that, you know, the research that, that William and I have done, so many of those things that have been attributed, uh, you know, some sort of deep meaning that the filmmakers put into it, a lot of it was just for practical purposes or by happenstance. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, I, I think I think enduring, I think television is really what um, left The Wizard of Oz with the legacy that it has now, because it, it was, we were reminded of it every year. It was only once a year, but some films, you know, don't get dusted off and re-released in theaters for, for decades. So you mm -hmm. had that and you have it in your home, uh, in your comfort zone, you have it with loved ones. And, um, you know, I, I wonder what the Wizard of Oz legacy would be like were it not for the its its television life. Yeah, you know, another thing I think is interesting about the the film, <clears throat> I I am impressed considering what they had to do with flying monkeys, fighting trees, like you know, munchkins, and the vibrancy of the colors. It's so impressive given the time that they were able to do it. And I and that's something I also love about older films. Even my era of films, I think personally CGI has kind of killed storytelling a little bit because you can make anything. You know, it it's not as impressive when a computer can do anything. Whereas you could watch the Teenage Ninja Turtle movie from the nine, in 1990 and be like, wow, that's amazing that they had those costumes and did that with that. And I think The Wizard of Oz is the same way where they did so much with so little um it, it was it's really impressive and so maybe you can um can inform the listeners a little bit about how this film it, it, it kind of has a really interesting past in that you know frank l frank Baum, who wrote it um really I, reading your book i see he went bankrupt trying to trying to make this into into a movie and uh maybe you can kind of summarize oh another thing i saw was really interesting was how different the, the book was to some of the things that happened in the movies. And uh, so perhaps you can talk about that. And then also one more question I had, I'm, I know I'm throwing a lot at you at once, is uh, was there anything that you wished in the book maybe ended up in the movie? Or do you think the movie was perfect just as it, as it was? Go ahead. Well, to, to address one of the questions, and I've forgotten yeah. the other five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I should have broke that down better. That's my fault. <laughs> uh, Frank Baum um, had a, a, an extraordinary imagination. He was also involved in the, um, the spiritualist movement of the late 1800s. And so there's some uh, very, very much um, some spiritualist themes throughout his Oz books, uh, your, your listeners may not realize that there were many sequels to The Wizard of Oz that he wrote, and then that was carried on by others after his passing. But this poor man just had absolutely no business sense whatsoever and had many, many careers, most of which he failed at. And mm. uh, he, he and his wife moved to Hollywood, California, um, when it was just in its fledgling uh, stages of becoming a movie-making colony. And um, he uh, became part of a group of um, investors who created an Oz filmmaking studio. 
And they mm -hmm. produced several uh, silent films based on his Oz stories that just didn't take off. Um, and so he had wonderful ideas, a terrific imagination, wrote um, many, many books under pseudonyms so that the market wasn't saturated with his name, but um, just didn't have the, the business sense. And so it's really a testament to his, his legacy, his imagination, and I think his ability to spiritually channel sometimes. <laughs> he would talk mm -hmm. about um, these characters, they're not doing what I want them to do. And I just have to step back and allow them to do what they tell me they want to do. And then it writes itself. So kind wow. of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, that was unrehearsed, but Bill actually gave me a good segue into something I was going to say. He talked about the book being very different than the movie. Mm -hmm. um, so Bill mentioned Baum's own films. So uh, the MGM film uh, produced in 1938-39 was not the first Wizard of Oz film, Wizard of Oz film to be made. Uh, Baum's own films did that. Um, there was a and there was a 1925 version, a silent version. And when you look at those films, and you look at the the MGM film, the MGM film was really the most literal to the book, even mm. despite all of the differences than you know these other things that went off. And there, there was a stage play too that was highly successful in in the early 1900s. But you know that went off on all kinds of tangents, and and it brought in you know miscellaneous characters and and things like that. So there are differences, but not so many differences as prior attempts to mm -hmm. film the Oz stories. Um, now the movies, even back then, uh, it, it's it's a capitalistic venture. It's a money making mm -hmm. business, uh, or strives to be, and uh, you have to the, the the filmmakers had to not only speak to the the book fan the fans of the Oz books but your general movie going audiences. So there were certain concessions that had to be made to say, okay, uh, like one of those was in, in the original Oz book, it's not a dream. This is something that happened. Dorothy mm -hmm. went there and she came back. And for you know your more literal minded movie going audiences to, uh, to make that acceptable, it became this dream. Mm, interesting. interesting. And Josh, also as, as you'll read as you continue to make your way through our book, The Road to Oz, as you'll read, there's a chapter on uh, the development of the scripts. And mm. early drafts of the scripts just meandered all over the place similarly. And um, it somehow, some way ended up coming back to something that um, was really, as Jay was saying, very close to the original book. Now, there were a lot of miscellaneous adventures that had to be edited out for the sake of time or because just practically the special effects would have been impossible but mm. um, it, it remains intact by and large mm, interesting is there um do either of you have a favorite scene from the movie jay well mr. my go ahead mr stillman well <laughs> I have, a, I have two favorite scenes. So one is sort of a childhood memory of the scene where Judy Garland just touches her toe to the tip of the spiral of the yellow brick road and mm -hmm. takes those first couple of steps onto the yellow brick road to begin the journey. And then the, it snowballs into the musical number, follow the yellow brick road and you're off to see the wizard. But there is a scene where the evil witch has 
Judy Garland all alone, and she's you know bargaining for the magic shoes for with the life of her dog. Mm -hmm. The witch goes to reach for the shoes, and everyone will remember that they shoot sparks, and she burns her fingers on the shoes. And then Judy Garland says, "Well, can I still have my dog?" And I—that's something a child would say. Like I—I yeah. I, I tried to keep my end of the bargain, and you know, can I can I still have my dog back? You know, and that yeah. that has touched me. Mm, awesome. How about you, Jay? Well, again, I'm I'm more shallow. I I just um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just like the scene where um, they they just. Uh, added the, the Cowardly Lion, Bert Lahr, to, uh, to now become a quartet. And there's that off to see the wizard, um, the four of them down, marching down the yellow brick road, dancing down. That that just to me kind of epitomizes. It's all four of them and Toto, five of them, on the mm. yellow brick road, off to see the wizard. So um, mm. that, that's just uh, from an imagery standpoint, that's that's something that uh, is is has always been a favorite of mine. Nice. People always, uh, Josh. People always wonder why did the scarecrow get? Well, he had a dance solo that was edited out, and then the Tin mm -hmm. Woodman has his own dance solo that stayed in the movie. But the Cowardly Lion doesn't get his own song and dance number. It's because Bert Lahr couldn't dance, mm. and so what <laughs> they did, what they did for him instead was they gave him a big uh, solo number of his own to kind of balance it out in the Emerald mm. City when he sings. If I were king of the forest, right? Yeah, that's that interesting. More, that was more in keeping with what he did on the on the Broadway stage. Right. Nice, interesting. So, um, talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about. So, I, I read in your book. It appeared that when uh, MGM picked up the the rights to the Wizard of Oz, that some of what they were doing was almost like sounded like they were kind of competing with Disney. Uh, can you give well, me a little bit more flavor about that. They were competing, but they were they were really inspired by Disney. Mm. Uh, his Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs released, you know, in December of 1937. Um, mm. You know, there were there were all the naysayers that were expecting him to fail, and just became this phenomenal success. Mm. Um, what some 20 million people in the first three months had seen Snow White, and then, you know, domestically and then internationally, and then all this merchandise made, I think. Uh, more than the than the the ticket sales themselves, and it, it, you know, so of course, as I said before, it's 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 the movie industry. It's a it's a business. So uh, the other studios took note, and uh, it was MGM uh, that acquired the film rights from uh, a man named Samuel Goldwyn of Goldwyn Studios. He was another mm -hmm. movie mogul who had um, acquired the rights in 1933. He wanted he had great aspirations to make an Oz film himself, and it just never materialized. And his so, aspirations were also inspired by Walt Disney. Right. So if, there, if there wasn't Walt Disney and there weren't the Three Little Pigs and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there wouldn't have been a Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Wow. And what's, what's interesting, um, for, for the research to Road to Oz, um, right, right, Bill, that that's where we learned that um, Walt Disney had actually lent a copy of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the, the film, to MGM. I mean, he was, you know, there, there, was, a, there was a professional, you know, relationship and uh, courtesy uh, among them, particularly Mervyn Leroy, who was the, the, the producer of The Wizard of Oz. 
And they actually screened the film at MGM, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, to essentially take notes and, and take inspiration. And, and, you know, from Walt Disney's perspective, it's like, yeah, this is a live action film. It's really no threat to me. So, um, you know, that, that was very interesting that, that the, the inspiration and the similarities, which there are many between the Wizard of Oz and Snow White were not incidental or coincidental. They were, they were intended. Mm. The, um, at that time, cartoon animation and live action films were considered completely separate mediums, right. mm. completely separate mediums. And so Walt Disney, he, as Jay said, you know, he, he had, he already had a working relationship with Metro Goldwyn Mayer and some of his um, animations were featured in some MGM films. So he sort of, and he and Mervyn Leroy, the producer on The Wizard of Oz, had a personal relationship in addition to a professional relationship. And so Disney was giving Leroy, you know, pointers throughout the pre-production phase of the movie. And once he saw the fi finished film, even sent Mervyn Leroy a letter telling him how, how much he thought he turned out a very fine picture and that his daughter said, it's as good as Snow White. <laughs> nice, man. So um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about casting too, because one of the things that I thought was interesting was how they came to choosing Judy Garland, considering that she was probably a little old for what Dorothy was supposed to be. And I know there was some reference in your book to Shirley Temple being quite, you know, quite considered. Perhaps you can talk about why that didn't come to pass. She does, did certainly seem to be the right age and the right look for Dorothy. So why didn't that happen? Yeah, there's, there's kind of a, a, a myth, somewhat of a myth that's, that's um, come about over the years and said, well, Shirley Temple was the first choice for Dorothy and Judy Garland got it by default, um, which isn't true. Um, I, at the time, just, you know, being Shirley Temple's status as, you know, this, this huge child star, um, I think a lot of people just, there was conjecture. Yeah, if, if they make The Wizard of Oz, of course, they, they want Shirley Temple to play Dorothy. Um, but, it, you know, from the time that MGM acquired The Wizard of Oz, the rights to it, um, it was always intended for Judy Garland, who was under contract to MGM. Now, she mm -hmm. had made films, but she hadn't uh, star, you know, been the star of any of those. And um, as, as you said, Josh, you know, there, there, there was concern that uh, despite her, her immense musical talent, well, and her acting talent, as we've since come to see, that physically it might be a little bit of a challenge that she was 15 years old as opposed to maybe, you know, 10 or 12. Um, she, she had a mature figure at that age, um, that, that she wasn't a star. Um, and, and to look at Judy Garland's films before The Wizard of Oz, she had a very different persona than what you see as Dorothy. She was very um, vivacious. You know, she had this hot singing voice. That was, that was her forte. She would sing these swing numbers. So a lot of people, you know, despite her, her physical uh, maturity, said, you know, she's just, that's not Dorothy. Dorothy is not this red hot mama. Uh, so, so she was not, uh, even, even by, by popular standards, she was not a favored choice. And there was, there was a lot of skepticism 
when it was announced that she was cast as Dorothy. Mm. But, Bill, to the Shirley Temple point. Well, Shirley Temple was rumored to be in a version of The Wizard of Oz as early as 1935. So mm. pre predating the start of the MGM production by even three years. I think it was just a very obvious choice. She was the number one top box office attraction in the country and it would make sense. And she herself was a huge Frank Baum fan. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many interviews over the course of her life of her talking about growing up as a child and um, her father would read her uh, from the Oz books, read to her from the Oz books. She had her own collection of, of the Oz books. Mm. Yeah. So I, I wonder, I wonder, did you ever hear, come across anything where Shirley Temple was kind of like, I wish I would have been Dorothy or anything of that nature? Yes, is, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, and she said it in later years. She said it in her autobiography. Mm. She says, I would have loved to have played that part. My father read me all the Oz books. But she mm. said, in hindsight, sometimes the gods know best. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. She said, Judy, what? Judy was super. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so um, there, there does seem to be, from what I've read in articles and things, there was some controversy surrounding uh, Judy Garland's treatment while filming Dorothy, particularly in, in. Actually, we can talk. I mean, put it in context of the time frame. I understand that she got paid less than everybody, with the exception of Toto. Is that is that true? Is that accurate? That's it. That's accurate. But you also have to remember that she was a minor mm -hmm. at that time. She was not a star. She was a contract player. She was a featured player, not mm -hmm. a star. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. she didn't have the experience and the successes mm -hmm. of her co-stars. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, it was during the Wizard of Oz, during the making of the Wizard of Oz, that she was elevated to star status. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the success of it. And she did. She made $500 a week and her total earnings were just under $10,000 for wow. her portrayal in that film. But, you know, you'll have to do the currency calculator to, True. I mean, that still was amazing money in that yeah. area. You know, sure. she at the, at the time the Wizard of Oz was being made, she and her mother were building a, new, a brand new house mm -hmm. in, Stone, in Stone Canyon. Right, right. Yeah, you know, um, and there were some other things that I that I read about um, views of her being, you know, that you mentioned she was physically mature for her age. Some reference to some sort of corset she had to wear. Do you, do you, can you tell us a little bit about the corset she had to wear? She did. Um, well, fortunately, she was small. Again, she's she's a teenager, really, mm -hmm. you know, uh, really too old. But she was four four foot eleven. That was that was her adult height. She that mm. she never surpassed that. So she was small. Um, you know, it was it was uh, you know she was told for years in her early career that she needed to lose weight. That she was you know too chubby. So, but if if you um, look at her in the Wizard of Oz, she did slim down, and yeah, to um, to blur you know her 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 breasts and and her figure, they did. They did strap her into a, a corset that, you know, w the goal of which was to give her a more childlike figure. Um, and it's it seemed to work, you know, and they, they uh, you know, they uh, 
the wardrobe department dressed her accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one could say that the way she wore her hair, her braids, you know, in, in, you know, down the front of her chest, you know, might've been another um, tactic to, um, to, uh, you know, conceal her, her breasts. Um, but I don't know, I think, I think on screen, she probably appears larger and more mature, even so, because Bill, Bill and I, we've seen her costumes for, for Dorothy in person mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. are small. They are, mm -hmm. I mean, they look like a child's garment. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to address something, Josh, um, on a daily basis, I am seeing people with podcasts and people with TikTok accounts and people with YouTube channels that address popular entertainment continuing to regurgitate and recycle the same dozen myths about the Wizard of Oz. And among them are the horrible, abusive treatment that Judy Garland suffered at MGM, how she was forced to diet. She could only smoke cigarettes and drink black coffee. Uh, and how deprived she was. This is garbage and it's nonsense being perpetuated by people who haven't done the research. We mm -hmm. have for, for about 30 years now, over 30 years, well, close to 40 years actually, been interviewing people who were extras on the film, including people who portrayed munchkins, uh, people mm -hmm. who were behind the scenes in the film, uh, people who whose job it was to be on the set every single day. She was thrilled. She had mm. the she had the lead role in MGM's most expensive motion picture to date. It was in Technicolor. She was surrounded by a cast of seasoned performers and comedians, and she had a ball. So I wish mm. we could put a stop to all of this um, clickbaiting. Uh, around how horribly she was treated and that she was starved. In our book, The Road to Oz, we actually document all of the accounts in which journalists interviewing her at luncheon in the commissary are writing about what she's eating. Hmm. Wait, they're, they're, why were they writing about what she was eating? Is it just because they, they wanted her to watch her weight or was that for some other reason? Were they commenting everybody? I'm interested in this because I've read a lot about this and I've been like, wow, that sounds really bad. And I'm glad we're we're talking about this because there's a lot of myths out there that we've we've heard and we'll address the the munchkin one soon too, the, the hanging munchkin, you know, and, and things like that. And so, yeah, so she's thrilled to be on there, but where do you think that this idea came from, this idea that she was so badly treated? I well, think it's I, just people trying to exaggerate uh, aspects of the production in order to cre create this quote-unquote dark dark side of The Wizard of Oz and to, you know, get clicks. Hmm. I mean, yeah. There is truth to, you know, the the... the the dietary restrictions and the pressures that that's not unlike today. Right. Um, right. That probably is, is the, the worst thing, if you will, that Judy Garland, um, you, you know, went through in making not only the wizard of Oz, but just being, you know, a, a, a movie star at MGM. So uh, beyond that, um, you know, any, any type of abuse, 
by the, you know, the, the munchkins lifting up her dress and things like that. I mean, she, mm. as, as, as William said, she was very well treated. She was the star of this film and, and, you know, she was a, a youngster and um, there's so many people on the set, you know, mm -hmm. if anybody tried anything like that, somebody would be there to say, Hey, you know, Hey, knock it off or go home. Right. So, um, you know, her mother was there on a daily basis. Now, you mm -hmm. know, she herself, you know, through the years, she, she exaggerated, you know, the, you know, the horrible stage mother that she had, but, you know, uh, I, I think that's from all accounts that we've seen, you know, that that's uncalled for that she, she had Judy's best interests at heart. So she was mm -hmm. on, she was there. Um, and her educators were on and, set also. And her educators and and her time was very limited actually on the set because there were mm. child labor laws. So she, she could only be at the lot for eight hours, but half of that had to be for um, education, three hours and recreation, one hour. So mm. then you figure in hair and makeup and then how much time is there to, before the cameras? Yeah. So, um, you know, she, she, it wasn't, you know, she wasn't just off doing whatever or, and, and anybody, you know, approaching her or however they wanted. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, they, they certainly did want her to keep her trim, especially for the Wizard of Oz. It wasn't, it wasn't even a thing about, we want you to be glamorous. It's like, we want you to look like a kid. Small, yeah. Like a girl. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We need you to look like a kid. Right. So, so, um, now there are, there was something else that I had read in an article, a couple articles actually, and maybe you can help let me know if there's any evidence of this at all. And that is, there have been some people that have tried to make some sort of a connection to Judy Garland's eventual drug abuse to taking amphetamines to diet for this movie. Have you seen any evidence of that at all? Well, at that time, um, amphetamines were brand new to the market as a pharmaceutical mm -hmm. and just like smoking cigarettes uh the side effects the long-term side effects were unknown mm -hmm. and so uh she was prescribed by a studio physician um some people say benzedrine uh, our source said uh, dexedrine mm -hmm. all the same thing in order to give her um they were considered like um super duper vitamin pills at the time mm -hmm. just to give her some pep and some energy and to um, help her to sparkle on camera. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And then, you know, because her, her nervous system was such that she was unable to sleep, then they would prescribe her with sedatives. And so it, they didn't just do this for Judy Garland only. Mm -hmm. um, many of MGM's stars and many people in Hollywood were uh, part of this process of kind of enhancing your delivery and your appearance and your performance with um, these pharmaceuticals that were brand new at the time. And again, the long-term side effects around, uh, you know, sleep, uh, insomnia and paranoia uh, were unknown at that time. And so mm. it was not done with malice. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of the times uh, I've heard of the, I think it's the, the term is presentism where, you know, you, you, you take what you know presently and you attribute it back to people in a different era. Like, right. you know, like, yes, I would have known differently back in 1938 
than all of these people who are doing these things. And so it, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is, is yeah, use of uh, what you, I thought of is, I remember in the eighties, they had a diet pill called Dexatrim that you would right. take that same, right. you know, same thing that you can't find that anywhere now. Right. But they were, there were commercials about it everywhere in the eighties, you know? And so, so same, in, 19, same, in 1939, smoking cigarettes was being promoted as healthy. Right. And it, it would calm your nerves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, uh, now you mentioned the munchkins earlier, and there's a lot of rumors out there about the munchkins behavior. Before we get into that, though, tell me, tell us, I find it really interesting how they were able to find like 300 little people back in the 30s to come in and do this. Can you talk about how they how they kind of found everybody and, and brought them together? Well, it wasn't 300. It was about 124. Oh, okay. Well, I was. It, it only looked like 300 in the movie. <laughs> but what they did, I don't mean to interrupt, Bill, was they would just, you know, when they would switch the camera angle, they would take the same munchkins from the last shot and put them in the in the background of the next one. So, as Bill said, mm-hmm. it looked like it, there were more of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what they did actually, it was, um, I believe, it was Ed Sullivan who had a Hollywood column at that time. Um, He's probably best known today for hosting his television program, but he was a Hollywood journalist at the time. He put out a notice in one of his columns that was nationally syndicated saying, MGM is looking for little people to play the munchkins. And that set in motion this, uh, what was then called the grapevine, the munchkin, it's an improper term to use now, but the midget grapevine. Mm-hmm. And so people from all over the country were then writing into MGM. And if they were willing and able to, to come out there, uh, they usually got cast as a munchkin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have known um, many of them over the years. They, many of them have been to our home. They've been mm-hmm. friends uh, and uh, nice, nice people. There were a few bad eggs uh, <laughs> at the time. And, you know, you get that many people together. And it was like actually the first Little People of America convention, if you think about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's and that's what I wanted to talk about because there were lots of rumors of just like these wild sex parties and like all this stuff. Have you seen, did anyone that you interview ever talk about any bad behavior that was going on and on set? Or was it just isolated to a couple of people or how did that come about? There, there were a couple, you know, uh, isolated, you know, uh, incidents where, you know, uh, it, Margaret Pellegrini, right, right? Uh, her, her roommate, she was 16 at the time. She was a little person, but she was 16. And I, I believe it was her roommate, the woman she was staying with during the filming of Oswell, her, her husband or boyfriend showed up, you know, wielding a knife and he was, so there were things like that, but they were few and far between. Uh, you know, One of the little women got picked up for prostitution and had to be bailed out. But again, it was, you know, a select few of them. And mm-hmm. again, they they were working long hours. They had to get up early, particularly because the makeup was so tedious for most of them, the men in particular. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it was the first time that many of them had been around other little people, those of them that were not already in show business. And so after hours, they were whooping it up. And with yeah. good reason, you know, they were blowing off steam and they were having fun and they were comparing notes. And um, mm-hmm. 
But but to your comment, Bill, I mean, there were long hours. There wasn't that much time, free time for them to be, you know, rabble rousing either. No, after hours. Yeah. But and but even so, as you say, get up in the morning early, long hours on the set. And then, OK, you've got a couple of hours maybe to yourself. Mm -hmm. so, so you think these things that kind of surround, you know, the, the dark side of the Wizard of Oz, do you think that these are just uh, isolated stories that over, you know, like a telephone type situation where one person yes. tells another person and they just blow up into these big folklore type uh, situations versus any actual evidence of it? It's be, as I keep saying, it's been very trendy to do this. Uh, yeah, I, I think over the past I 20 think, years. Or so. I think what people have done is they, they take a small grain of truth mm -hmm. and they spin it in such a way um you know like we just talked about with with the munchkins yeah there was a there was some truth to that to a small degree but then you blow it up into you know they were they were just uh you know a, a group of uh, uh hookers and <laughs> and, yeah. and and gangsters and they, they, well, yeah. listen, there was an entire chevy chase movie written about all of this called under the rainbow with carrie fisher in 1981 Oh, I didn't even know about that. Is that is well, that... take a look. I mean, it's yeah. the whole, you know, it's the premise is uh, around, you know, the antics of the Munchkins while making The Wizard of Oz. Interesting. Wow. Now, there's one there's one rumor that I know is a myth, but I got to address it. The Hanging Munchkin. You probably heard about this a thousand times in every podcast you've ever done. Let's just clear the air. There's no Hanging Munchkin, right? There is not. The, the, the moment in question is right after um, they've, they've met up with the Tin Man. And as, as uh, the, now the trio um, does their chorus of we're off to see the wizard and they march down the yellow brick road. In the distance is supposedly this hanging munchkin. Uh, what it is in reality is, uh, you know, MGM's attention to detail. You know, in Baum's book, they, you know, he talked about, you know, birds, exotic birds and things. So, you know, MGM went to the Los Angeles Zoo and rented out things like, you know, a big crane, uh, mm -hmm. as in the bird, a source crane. And you see this bird kind of meandering around in other scenes, but it's that that you see in the background, where as they're marching towards this bird, it either is startled or something or it's stretching. It causes it to stretch its wings. But when you're, when the camera is focused on the principles in the foreground, the background is going to be blurred mm. or vice mm. versa. Either you're focusing on one or the other and somebody mm. just decided that, okay, that looks like something moving that is a person that just hanged themselves. So here's yeah. the thing, Josh, um, this actually started in the late sixties, early seventies. Mm. I started hearing, but it wasn't. People weren't claiming it was a, a suicide. People were thinking it was a, a technician that somehow wandered into the scene. The Wizard mm -hmm. of Oz was never originally intended to be seen on a screen as small as, small as television sets were in the 1960s and 70s. Mm. And so on. And Interesting. So, yeah. And so people weren't sure exactly what they were seeing. They knew they were seeing something. And it's only really been in recent years that there's been this explosion of um, what's it called? A, um, an urban legend or an urban myth 
that someone hung themselves. Anyone who is maintaining that happened on the set of a Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer film doesn't understand the filmmaking process. Right. There would have been um, at least, at a minimum, 50 people standing behind the camera on set. And the majority of the little people weren't even in Culver City at the time mm. that scene was shot. Mm. There is no way anyone, mm. I don't care who they were, would have been able to wander onto that set and surreptitiously scale a tree and um, hang, hang themselves. It's, it's a ridiculous um, myth that people, for whatever reason, continue to perpetuate because they want to see something dark and mysterious about behind the scenes of this movie. Yeah. You, you know, another, Oh, uh, did you have something you want no, to say? I, I was just saying, I mean, the wizard of Oz was uh, in production for six months and, and that's just principal photography. That's not post-production and all that much, much longer than it was expected. Um, much longer than your typical film, certainly of the time. And a lot of that was just because all of the time that it took to set up these shots and yeah. you had, uh, you, you know, uh, William was uh, was very close uh, uh, with Charles Schramm, who did the Cowardly Lions makeup throughout the entire mm. picture. And mm. much of his job was to stand behind the camera and make sure that none of Bert Lars' skin showed under his bald cap. So people were looking that carefully at every single shot and every single setup. So to Bill's point, um, I think somebody would have noticed <laughs> if there was a you know, a, a, a hanging body in the background that shouldn't have been there. So, okay, shifting gears a little bit, I have to ask you both, and I, I would be so happy if you have. Have you ever done the Wizard of Oz with the Dark Side of the Moon? <laughs> have you done that? It um, is, it is wildly accurate. Yeah. I think <laughs> once, many years ago, I think we we did it. <laughs> yeah. I, oh man, I did it. I did it in high school. I took a I took a class. It was just a. It, I was a basketball player, and they told me I'd get an A if I took humor and satire. And it was just all we did was watch movies all day. It was the basketball coach who was the teacher, and he and he was like, he heard about it, and so we did it in school, and it was wildly close. I know it's not real, but it was right. just like it was wildly close. Uh, even when like you know the the um, not the witch, but the the you know, the lady who's coming to take Dorothy in the, in the, in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And then all the alarms come on as she's biking up and all those things is to, to the, uh, the money and stuff. And I'm just like, wow, you know, or to time crazy. It was just nuts. I love it. I, I, I love doing, it. I've done it like three times. So it's just, it's so fun. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, back to, uh, you know, Josh, an earlier comment or question you had about, you know, uh, what keeps wizard of Oz relevant <laughs> if nothing else, it's things like this that that do keep it relevant, whether they're yeah. true or not. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that's one thing you can say about it. People's yeah. interest is still there, um, mm -hmm. maybe not for the right reason, but um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's been joked that uh, every every film and television show that's been released since 1939 has some sort of reference to the Wizard of Oz in it. Uh, while yeah. that is not technically true, there there. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of truth too, you know, the references uh, in so much popular culture. Uh, Even the recent Barbie movie, which I haven't seen, but uh, apparently there's lots of 
Wizard of Oz influence there too. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'll tell you what, I, I was surprised. I didn't think I was going to I was going to like that movie, but I did. I liked it a lot. But it was the makers of Clueless, so how are you not gonna like that? Yeah, a lot, lot of people are movie. loving that film. Uh, you know, yeah. the uh, uh the box office draw proves it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's what's so interesting about movies in general is that, like, you know, they had the whole what they call it, Bar Barbieheimer. Oppenheimer had a huge showing because of the, you know, there was just the oh, who's gonna, you know, and so everyone went and saw both of them at the same weekend. Yeah, and uh, that's it's so interesting how things like this, like controversies, even if they're real or not, somehow make movies a bigger deal and keep, like you said, keep them relevant. Um, another thing that I, I found really interesting was, uh, you know, there's there was the talk about the Tin Man's paint and the face paint and getting the original. Was it the original actor who either got sick or, pa or passed away as a result of the poisoning? Can you tell us a little bit about how that all came about? And what happened there? Yeah, that is very true. Um, the original. Um, he didn't actor. pass away. <laughs> yeah, the original okay. actor who played the Tin Man was Buddy Epson, who found fame later on. Well, he, he I mean, he was famous then. He, he was a song and dance man. He, he had uh, danced with Shirley Temple in, in one of her films prior to Oz. But, um, you know, today's audiences know him as uh, Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hills mm. and also oh, Bobby yeah. Jones. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's still going back. I'm dating myself, but you know it's still more recent. Uh, but there was there was a lot of experimentation with the makeup, and you know, just like Bill said, with the um, with with the the diet prescription, there was no malice. But what they did uh, to affect his his facial makeup was um, uh, was a was an aluminum powder. Mm. powdered his face and as you can imagine something that's in a powder or a dust format for two weeks as he was filming uh in his costume as the tin man he was inhaling this stuff all day every day mm. and eventually it just coated his lungs to the point where he could breathe and it did uh, did cause him to forfeit the role they had you know he couldn't he couldn't uh, continue filming um as Bill said, he 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 actually survived all the other cast members despite you know this medical trauma <laughs> that he endured. He he outlived all of the uh, the print, actual principal actors from the film. But when they brought in Jack Haley, which actually from another studio, it was actually Shirley Temple Studio, mm. uh, 20th Century Fox. They brought Jack Haley to um, uh, to resume the role of the Tin Man. And in the interim, they changed the makeup from a uh, from an airborne dust powder kind of thing to a paste. Mm. And they had, you know, and it was doctor tested, but unfortunately for Buddy Epson, it was too little, too late. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And listen, you... back, I mean, back then there was no HR department, there was no OSHA. So again, you know, some of the claims that I think people make, as you were saying, Josh, are in the context of what we know today mm. and not in the 1930s. But right. even, even Margaret Hamilton's makeup as the Wicked Witch of the West, it was green because it had copper in its base. Mm. And her, her skin had to be cleaned scrupulously after each makeup application was removed so that the copper wouldn't sink into her pores into her mm. skin yeah 
Well, it's so interesting. It's so interesting when you when you go back. I mean, even even in my lifetime, right? When like now people are wearing helmets when they're riding bikes. You right. know, we didn't do right. that in the in the in the mid eighties. You didn't. Everyone rode around without without bicycle helmets. You know, I mean, it's it's interesting how how these things graduate from oopses. You know, like like that. Oops. Yeah, we didn't mean to. We didn't mean to poison you. You know, but it, it happens. You know, and mm-hmm. so that's. Um, now of all the castings, um, is there somebody that you think, is there an interesting story about some of the other castings that you could share or someone who you think was a, was a really great casting for, uh, you know, for their part? I don't think you could improve upon the cast. I know mm-hmm. that there are people that have been awfully critical of, uh, Billy Burke as Glinda and mm. in, in the 1970s, she was parodied quite a bit um, on uh, t- television variety shows and so on, because as The Wizard of Oz was becoming more popular with uh, American audiences. But um, Mervyn Leroy originally wanted Ed Wynn or W.C. Fields to play the wizard. Mm-hmm. But I think that Frank Morgan's wizard is just perfect in the subtlety of the performance and uh, the humanity that he brings, especially when he's awarding the the tokens of uh, the various attributes that the characters had been seeking. I think there's something very touching and heartwarming about the way he delivers his lines. There's a, again, it's very humanistic. You know? mm. I, I think actually the, the opposite in my mind, in my opinion, Josh is, is true in that, um, they ended up with the perfect cast, but in some instances, almost did not. Uh, I mean, you know, Buddy Epson might be a good example. You know, it was unfortunate what happened to him, but you know, would he have been as effective as the Tin Man? We've, you know, we've heard his. Um, he recorded all of his songs, and you know, he wasn't as strong um, in doing that as Jack Haley proved to be. Um, Shirley Temple, you know, if they had gotten her. The Wizard of Oz might have been just another Shirley Temple picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Wicked Witch was originally cast with a completely different actress and a, in a different, completely with a completely different concept in mind. That was to have a glamorous Wicked Witch, kind of mm-hmm. like the Evil Queen in Snow White. So there again, you're, you're, you know, MGM is looking to Snow White kind of uh, as a blueprint, mm-hmm. and an actress named Gail Sondergaard, who Mervyn Leroy. The, the producer of the Wizard of Oz um, had worked with and on some of his other pictures. Um, she was actually the first woman to win Best Supporting Actress the first year they had that category. So she was mm. an accomplished actress, but she she was glamorous yet wicked. Mm. And they did costume tests for her, and Mervyn Leroy just finally said, "You know what? We can't change it this much. People aren't expecting this of the Wicked Witch," and mm. they tested her. You, you know, in, uh, in in rags and things like that. And then it became apparent to both the producer and the actress, yeah, we don't we don't want you to play this kind of part. So, you know, no hard feelings. She 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 declined the role, they, you know, and they brought on Margaret Hamilton. But that would have been a very different twist and and look and feel to the Wizard of Oz because you look at Margaret Hamilton's characterization of the Wicked Witch, that's classic. She mm-hmm. defines uh, a witch, 
you know, all mm -hmm. these years, she is the definition of a witch, even mm -hmm. to this day. Um, what is interesting, too, is that a lot of her lines, in retrospect, you can see how they were written for the glamorous characterization. When mm -hmm. she's melting, she says, who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? Mm. She made it work. And mm. even, even her famous line about, you know, uh, my little pretty, that's mm. maybe something more that a, an evil queen or a glamorous witch might say, as opposed to Margaret Hamilton, but it works. Yeah. But one of the very interesting things that we discovered for our book, The Road to Oz, is that MGM in a very passive aggressive way was holding Judy Garland and her mother accountable by suggesting that they had a standby for her part, for the part of Dorothy. Mm. And we uncovered this for the first time in our book mm. by a little girl named Janice Chambers who actually filled in for Judy on what's called comparative testing. Mm. So comparative testing is when you you group um, actors together or their their doubles in costume for the purposes of seeing how it all meshes together and how they look against one another. And this woman actually did that. Hmm. And she could sing. She could sing. Hmm. She could dance. She was very talented. She was signed to a contract uh, at about the time that Judy Garland was originally cast in The Wizard of Oz. So that's a whole fascinating story in and of itself. And and when you say held, held her accountable, for, for what exactly? What were they? To comply. Uh, and, and again, it was not just Judy Garland. Um, all studios had a second string of um, actors who bore a, a passing resemblance to the A-list actors and the studio could always say, you know, if you don't, if you don't toe the line, we're going to start promoting this person as your replacement. Mm, interesting. Now, um, was there, uh, you know, my I think my my favorite character in all of this was the Scarecrow, and the thing about the Scarecrow that I found really interesting at the end of the movie is it appeared for some reason that Dorothy and the Scarecrow had a closer relationship than the other, than the, than the other characters. Uh, was that just a, a situation of develop because they were with each other longer or was there something else that was supposed to be suggested there? Both. <laughs> okay. Um, and even in Frank Baum's book, um, Dorothy kisses goodbye, the cowardly lion and the tin woodman she doesn't do that to the scarecrow. When she says goodbye to the scarecrow, she hugs him. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how he delineates that. So when I was growing up watching the movie, I also always interpreted it, her partiality as he had been her first friend and had been with her the longest. And if you watch the film, he is very protective of her. He rescues her from the, the apple tree that clutches her in the witch's castle. He's kind of guiding her. Um, but there was early on um, a subtle romance between Dorothy and the Kansas farmhand, who is the Scarecrow's counterpart, that got mm. edited out of the script. Mm. I see. Um, 
that just brought me on to another thing. Do you remember? I can't. I think it was called Return to Oz, the sequel that they did. Oh, that was bad. Like I did. I was not a fan. But um, that seemed to be developed a little bit more. Where, where did that come from? Where, whose idea was that? That just seemed like Dorothy was younger in the second one, which didn't make a lot of sense. And was that supposed to be a sequel? Do you, do you know anything about that sequel? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we lived through that whole period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I, mean, I, used to, I want to make sure I wasn't like dreaming no, up something weird. No. I mean, the year before, uh, a representative from Disney came to one of our Oz gatherings and you know presented all the information and handed out the advanced posters and buttons and so on. So yes, we remember it quite well. Oh, wow. What did you think of that when they were, I mean, did you tell them, what are you guys doing? Like, were you like, don't do it, please don't. Or what was your thoughts? Well, it looked great. Oh, really? I, did you yeah, like? Did you like the movie? It was very different. I mean, for anybody, it's 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 really um, no disrespect. It's it's not even appropriate to call it a sequel because it was yeah. so many years later. It wasn't a musical. It was you know um, so many so many things were different about it. What what it was um, was a composite of a couple of the later Oz books in the series after the Wizard of Oz mm. and with these characters. And I think. I think this film um, was striving or concentrated a little too much on um, being literal to the books and, you know, getting mm. the, the right look to the character as opposed to story development. And it was mm. dark. I mean, you know, Dorothy mm. goes, you know, is, is uh, nearly subjected to electric sh electroshock therapy yeah. uh, until she escapes. Um now that said, it was it was correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. It was it was a huge success in Japan, which you know is is a very different culture, and, and you know a lot of things that are successful, not successful here, are successful in Japan, and vice versa. Yeah, it's considered one of Disney's red-haired children. So <laughs> Disney Disney doesn't talk about it, but what I can tell you is that it has a massive cult following, massive cult following. And merchandise that was issued at the time, this is 1985, um, sells for extraordinary amounts of money now. Really? That's Absolutely. interesting. It has wow. a huge cult following of, of kids who remember either seeing it in the theater or seeing it when it ran on HBO or on network television. It only aired on TV a year after it was released. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, it, I, it a huge, huge cult following. I seem to remember seeing it. I I I think I rented it at like not even Blockbuster. It was like one of the original, you know, the the regional <laughs> movie stores. And I remember watching it and being like, "This." I I think I was expecting like a sequel, and it didn't really. It just see it was just there were so many weird things. It didn't have the same feel. And it brings me up to another thing. You know, now we've had these things like you brought up Wicked. There was Oz the Great and Powerful. Right. You you guys are. I've noticed this with my own fandom and some of my friends who are big time fans of other movies. Like you hear about, I, I remember I have a, uh, one of my best friends is a huge star Wars fan and I joke with him all the time. I'm like, you know, star Wars fans only really like two of the 15,000 movies they've made. They, they actually hate star Wars. They just like, they just like a new hope and they like, you know, yeah. uh, empire strikes back. And I think the reason that is, is because I think every fan, especially when there's been a long period of time, they kind of have their own views. They've kind of envisioned what they think a sequel would look like. And so when one comes out and then it doesn't fit with their image, they kind of 
Like I've, I've felt that way with movies that have come out later on and be like, oh, that's going to be awesome. And then it didn't really do what I wanted it to do. Do you find yourselves being able to enjoy some of these things like, you know, interpret like Wicked interpreting how the Wicked Witch became the Wicked Witch or like Oz the Great and Powerful and learning, you know, how, learning that. Do you do you like those movies? Do you not? I try to keep an open mind. I don't uh, expect that it's ever going to, you know, resonate with me like the MGM film. Uh, but it's it's always kind of a curiosity. Now, Wicked, um, I liked it, but I, you know, I I like that kind of entertainment too. You know, musical theater. You know, I, I thought it was good in that respect. And and you know, uh, we saw it, uh, Wicked, in its infancy. It, you know, the, the, it wasn't like you can't get tickets to it. Nobody, the buzz hadn't started, so there were no preconceived notions. And I thought, oh, that, that was that was kind of cool. I I enjoyed that. Uh, same with Oz the Great and Powerful. You know, I, I thought that was an interesting story, but it, to me, it was it was just kind of standing on their own. You know, I could enjoy yeah. it. I didn't see this as a projection for me of how I uh, how I felt about uh, again the MGM film. Mm, interesting. How about you, William? I just think the the MGM film is sort of its own uh, something unto its own, and it's untouchable. And it continues to inform and inspire all sorts of popular entertainment to this day. And I, the only concern I have is that I think more children nowadays know Toy Story and uh, Frozen than they do The Wizard mm. of Oz because mm. it's no longer an annual event on television. And so it really falls to parents and grandparents to be introducing the, the Wizard of Oz film to uh, to younger generations so that it will continue to sustain. I felt maybe it was because my parents and my grandparents introduced it to me, but I felt almost an obligation to well, show my kids thing. the Wizard of Oz because because it's so it's such a uh, I mean, like I said, I'm a film buff and I just respect like it, there are certain markers in movies that like that mark kind of an era and like a change in the way films are being made. Like I, I would say my, like star Wars in the seventies was one of those mm -hmm. two. And then I even think I would put Jurassic park in there too, as, as a nineties, the first real CGI where you could make a, something that's not real look real with computer animation and, and surround sound and all that. And I would even argue that the most recent would be like Endgame doing the 19 movie achievement the Wizard of Oz is one of those iconic change in movies movie. It's almost like, and so it's for me, I just feel like it's an obligation. I, I don't, I don't understand my kids. I feel I'd be doing a disservice by not showing them the Wizard of Oz. If they're, if they love movies, you know, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's amazing, Josh. Uh, and, and you, you know, you alluded to this early on that um, it has held up. Um, it doesn't look, like an old movie right. um, i mean technicolor certainly helped that i mean that was uh that was a somewhat of a novelty when the wizard of oz was made um but i th i think maybe part of what helps the wizard of oz be timeless is it's set in a fantasy except for the you know the, the prologue uh in kansas um so you don't have uh dated costumes it's all fantasy 
So mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, look, look, look at the, look at the suit that guy's wearing. That you know, it's a it's a zoot suit or whatever they you know they call them. It's uh, and this is why everything had to be created for the Wizard of Oz. You couldn't just go and pull something out of out of stock at the studio. Everything had to be created because if there was nothing like it in existence. It was fantasy. Mm, interesting. Yeah. What do you think, William? Anything? Anything to add to that? It is just one of those in, incomparable forms of entertainment that was born of a perfect storm. Yeah. So yeah. much could have gone wrong. So much did go wrong, and somehow, some way, it coalesced and came together to form this extraordinary moment in time on celluloid that has again affected and influenced and been taken to heart by millions and it's considered the single most watched film of all time yeah i mean i it was we watched it a lot in my household so i know that i know that that's that's true well you were were raised right then (laughs) exactly exactly so um in all of your your history, your research, your collecting, is there something that sticks out as what you would consider like the coolest thing you got to do in in developing this research in The Wizard of Oz? For me, it's just been uh, the opportunity to interview and interface with and befriend people who were there. Mm people who lived the experience firsthand, people who either appeared on film, on camera, or worked behind the scenes, because with, uh, I could probably count on one hand now, 85 years later, almost 85 years later, the number of people who are still alive. Mm. So all of the people that I have known um, are, are long gone now, and I'm just thrilled to have had that opportunity to, to know them, and to learn so much from them, not just about the Wizard of Oz, but about filmmaking in that era. Mm. Interesting. How about you, Jay? Uh, I would agree. I would agree with William. It's um, it's presented a lot of opportunities for us uh, in that respect that we've gotten to meet some very interesting people. You know, we obviously the two of us both appreciate you know old hollywood you know the golden age of hollywood so you know we we've we've been able to you know dine with people like june allison who you may or may not know but she i mean she was a big star back then um margaret o'brien who was a child star you know very famous i mean probably the one of the more exciting things was a decade ago we were invited to attend the re-premiere of the Wizard of Oz in 3D at the TCL Theater, which was originally Grauman's Chinese mm. Theater, which is where the Wizard of Oz premiered in 1939. Oh wow. I've been there a couple of times. I took my I took my boys to see movies there because it's just it's so iconic. That's yeah. that had to have been awesome to be able to to be there. Man, that's it's so cool. Do you ever feel like you were born in the wrong era. You're like, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right there in that. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I was there. I know I was there. Because yeah. as you said, I mean, I've, I've interviewed and, and 
befriended and had meals with people who worked during that era. And I'm talking with them like I was there too. Yeah. I it and I've never been impressed by anyone's wealth or celebrity. To me, it's just mm -hmm. sort of like you know, yeah, I, I've been there too. I've done that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting, man. So, uh, what's next for you guys now? You've written this book. You've written several. Um, you have a you have a collection. You you do you go out and you are are, are kind of historians where you're considered the experts on this. What's what's next in your uh, uh, in your 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 own road, Dawes? Well, we do have, we are planning another project uh, that's kind of under wraps right now, but um, there, there's always something that we're planning. But I do want to mention also, Josh, the book that you're currently reading, The Road to Oz, won a National Book Award. Which, which word did it, I didn't see that. Which word did it, where did it win? It won the National Indie Excellence Book Award. Oh, that's awesome. For the category in which it was nominated, which was motion pictures and television. That's awesome, man. That's unfortunately, you know, not to bring about, you know, once again, the dark side of things. Um, uh, we, we struggle, uh, William and I, because, you know, we feel we have more to offer, but it's become very complicated these days with, uh, you know, you have Warner Brothers, who, you know, was a, was a completely different studio than MGM at the time, but through the years, they're now the licensing entity, and it's become mm. very difficult to get through that process, you know, as time goes by. And um, with the internet, we've we've struggled in putting new information out there because before we even get it published, it, it's it, uh, it's out there before you know we who who you know have uncovered this information. Um, sometimes at great expense when you talk of imagery and people are just pirating it left and right. It's, you know, it's on people's Facebook yeah. pages. So, you know, we, um, we struggle with, we want to share, but at the same time, um, you, you know, is it, um, is, is it a moot point for us? Yeah, I bet. Well, but this is, I got to tell you the work that you put in, I personally, as someone like I, like I said, I love The Wizard of Oz. My favorite movie is Rocky. I love learning new stuff about it. I love hearing new interviews. I went like they do a theater thing. I'm also a Karate Kid fan. I've watched Cobra Kai, you know, and I've actually interviewed Sean Kanan on here. You know, the guy who plays Mike yeah. Barnes. I did. I've I've done a, Gosh, an interview with Josh. Him. I'm from the 1930s. I don't know who those people are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm following you. I'm, yeah, but my, but my but my point is is that I appreciate people like you who put in the time and the research so that people like me can learn this stuff because it's so fascinating. You know what I mean? Like this stuff is so fascinating. Hearing these stories about these iconic movies and hearing things like it was almost it could have potentially been Shirley Temple. Or, you know, if it wasn't that the, the Tin Man that we see was not the original Tin Man, you know, or, yeah, that Munchkin hanging thing, definitely a myth. No, they weren't running wild sex parties at the Culver Hotel. Like, that wasn't really happening. I appreciate that you guys work so hard to show, you know, it. I love passion. You know what I mean? Like, I love people who are passionate. I remember a guy telling me one time, this is kind of me getting on a soapbox, but he told me, you know, I love pro wrestling and he asked me about pro wrestling and I went on like a 10 minute, you know, rant 
And I go, do you like wrestling? He goes, no, I don't like wrestling, but I like hearing you talk about wrestling. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I can tell that you guys are passionate about this. And and it's always fun to hear passionate people talking about what they're passionate about. So I, agree. I, I would encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. you That's know? a great compliment. And we actually are friends with people who collect on other topics. And I think it's for the same reason that you just stated that it's it's interesting to see people who are passionate about what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you get this stuff? Like, where do you find it? Well, you, have to, you have to remember, we've been collecting for um, over 50 years now. Right. Right. But like, do you, do you, where do you find new stuff and, and how do you get it authenticated? It's, it's difficult at, you know, at this stage uh, of our collecting to find things that, you know, we don't already have. Um, mm -hmm. I said that, you know, the, the, the publications, you know, ever since 1989, when, when the first book uh, you know, of ours came out, ha has opened up a lot of doors. It's put our names out there as collectors. So sometimes things come to us. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 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 hard. And, and and as you said, Josh, without the passion, it's like, I'm not doing this. This is too hard. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so, that's these, a, so Josh, these days, collector, you know, very young people, I think, don't understand that there was a before eBay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. You know, we used to get up at the crack of dawn, <laughs> uh, drive two hours one way to arrive to stand in line for a, a collector show two hours ahead of time. So you'd get a good spot in line and never knowing if you would walk away with anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's passion. That's dedication. That is that's that's hardcore dedication. And that and that's the that's the other thing. The reason I bring it up is so I I come across I have everybody makes fun of me about this, but I have a bunch of the reaction figures, rock like the reaction figures. I kept them in the yep. box. You know what I mean? And I I bought a whole set of them, and I'm always looking for for them uh, around. And it's it's hard because sometimes you go to eBay and you, you there's no promises that it's legit. You know what I mean? Or you have something that's autographed, right? Well, how do you know that that's a real autograph, you know, or, or things like that? And so it's right. just interesting to to hear that there are people like you who can who almost kind of can authenticate some of this stuff. We do know? for auction houses. We, yeah. We've done that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, it's and how many times, you know, in those instances where, you know, a reputable auction house comes and it's like, yeah, no, no way that that's. You know, just just do the screen comparison. That is right. not what they're saying. It is. Yeah. Um, and but you know, were it not for that, it, it, it's still happening, and it's not it's not necessarily um, you know misconduct of the of the auction house. But if if they're if they've got it wrong, and you, know, you have a buyer that's paying a lot of money for it, it's unfortunate that that's really you know they're not getting what they what they think they're paying for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got. I appreciate all of your time. I want to ask you one last question. What would you do if you found out they were remaking The Wizard of Oz? Well, there's plans to do that. Oh, is there really? I haven't caught that. When, who's doing it? Is MGM um, doing it? I don't remember the name of the, the person. Uh, I always, what resonates with me, and I'll be quick, uh, Bill, is um, he, he's an interesting person to begin with. And I, I once saw uh, uh that question was posed to uh john waters the, mm. the the filmmaker um and the question was if they remade the wizard of oz who 
would they cast? Who do you think they should cast? And his response was, well, they shouldn't be remaking the good movies. They should be remaking the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And he also said that he would root for the failure of anyone who attempted <laughs> to remake The Wizard of Oz. So I'm kind of in that camp. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's the thing. Like, um, I, I was bringing up before, uh, I uh, the other movie I really love is The Karate Kid. And so when they were doing Cobra Kai, I was I was so upset. Because they did The Karate Kid movie with, you know, Jaden Smith or whatever, and I hated it. And, yeah, uh, yeah it was bad. And so... When Cobra Kai came out, I was, I was surprised at how good it was, and and after I and it's, it's still good, and and I've thought about it since then, and I'm like, I can't think of any other movies that they've remade that I walked away saying I'm glad they did that, you know what I mean? Uh, and so I I gotta think you, you the Wizard of Oz is such a standalone, and there's not a lot of movies that like I said, ninety to hundred years later people are still talking about and can still watch and great grandchildren are watching. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't think you mess with that. I don't know. I agree. Uh, I yeah. agree. Well, we'll thank you. Out. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I'll tell you what, if they do it, I'm going to hit you guys up and have you come in and review it for us. So tell us how bad it was. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I appreciate you guys. Um, so Road to Oz, uh, so far what I've read is great. I'm getting I'm getting fuzzies. There you go. Road to, there you go. Road, Road to Oz, fantastic book so far. What I've read, I I want to. I'm going to finish it for sure. Um, is there anything else that you just want people who are listening to understand about the movie before we wrap up? Just share it with your children and your grandchildren, and continue to pass it along. That's all. Definitely. Definitely. Jay, you got anything to add, or just same yeah, thing? Uh, just just what bill said i mean appreciate even if you don't know take our word for it that not only that it came together uh out of chaos at times that it came together so well and has endured for so long so um it's just it's just a fascinating uh somewhat unbelievable story on, on the creation of this motion picture masterpiece as the the book title says yeah definitely well I appreciate you indulging me and giving me the time for those who are listening. If you subscribe, uh, where can they find you guys? If they want to find you, I know your books on Amazon. Where can they, can they follow your, uh, your work? We don't do social media. We kind of keep a low profile. So all of our books can be found on Amazon, certainly, or other bookseller outlets. Just type in our names and yeah. they'll come up. Every, right. every once in a great while, we'll turn up at a, a, a an Oz themed event, but um, yeah, it's it's not too often. And and COVID kind of sucked a lot of that, you know, uh, yeah. out of us as it did so many people. Um, yeah, we we may get back into that that groove again, um, but there's no uh, no website. Uh, we, as as William said, we uh, just tend to keep a low profile. But you know we're we're certainly open to speaking you know I, i'm so glad you found us this is this has been wonderful yeah you know we're always open to that uh well well let's keep in contact because i've really enjoyed talking to you guys it's always interesting to talk to people who have passion about movies and so we'll have to we'll have to keep in contact for sure appreciate your for time. having us thank you for yeah. having me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely all right till next time we'll we'll talk to you later <laughs>